Welcome back to Speculative Futures. I'm your host, Michael Phillips Moskowitz, or MPM. Or Moskowitz, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. We're discussing, exploring, and attempting to dimensionalize a brighter future for Israel. Not a fictional scenario or a sci-fi fantasy, but a better reality for everyone on the eastern shores of the Mediterranean. This is not a 2050 plan. It's a strategy to deliver real and material gains in the next 15 years. So, how do you do it? Well, in this episode, we'll train our sights on the economy. It's fine and well to talk about bold policies, like America's Green New Deal, or even a universal basic income. Those are great. But how do you actually finance them? Meaning, how do you pay for them? And how do you politic these ideas to get them passed? Well, here, we hope to make a compelling case for creating the world's first true technocracy. And the price tag to achieve this vision in the next decade and a half? $8.73 billion, which is really not that much for an entire country in that short a time frame. That's your so-called deal of the century. But it doesn't start with the World Bank or with VCs or even with sovereign wealth funds. It starts with words. Definitions. Words matter. We've all been reminded of that recently. Even subtleties are significant. Consider, for instance, the terms empathetic, which is big these days, versus compassionate. Buried in one is the term pathetic. In the other, passion. So let's be compassionate. All this is to say, when we use the term technocracy, to frame or illustrate what we have in mind, we're not suggesting that it serve as a or the authoritative new vernacular. We're just using it as a horizon line, not a North Star. Technocracy, for present purposes, means the pursuit of a new economic paradigm. And the goal is to orient Israel around an economic model that generates primarily digital goods and services. But in 2021, even the world's top 20 most advanced economies come nowhere close. But wait, wouldn't making an economy this dependent on technology also make it massively vulnerable to disruption? Like cyber attacks or other insidious plots? Or like fundamentally more precarious? I'm no economist or a golfer, but if GDP doesn't have a strong grounding in stable fundamentals, couldn't developments somewhere else or the bursting of a bubble topple the whole economy? Well, sure, but there's far more to the story. So bear with us, Norman. Dude, it's Noam. N-O-A-M. Okay. But rest assured, we're not calling for the end of physical currency or the adoption of a cashless economy. And we don't envision or hope for or even assume that AI is a purely benign power or likely to descend like a deus ex machina to resolve the plot. We're not championing the acceleration of the surveillance state or inviting nefarious actors or QAnon, the deep state, the Masons or the Illuminati, to control the new digital frontier. This is not Infowars. Although, I'll admit, their t-shirts are pretty cool, and that guy's voice, Alex Jones, I swear it's Randy Macho Man Savage reincarnated. All right, so let's get into it. The Blessing of the Barren Cupboard. Former Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir once said, at a state dinner with the then West German Chancellor, maybe it was Willy Brandt, quote, 
Let me tell you something that we Israelis have against Moses. He took us 40 years through the desert in order to bring us to the one spot in the Middle East that has no oil. Well, in 1973, it seemed like a cruel fact of history. But it was actually a blessing. This is what economists call the resource curse, also known as the paradox of plenty, a widely known and well-studied phenomenon of countries with an abundance of natural resources, fossil fuels or minerals, that lead to less economic growth, lower levels of democracy, and generally worse development outcomes than countries with fewer natural resources. Israel demonstrates how profoundly few resources actually mandated ingenuity and constant innovation. They couldn't simply rely on gifts from the ground, gold, silver, platinum, oil, gas, or even uranium. And that culture of thinking by necessity, of building or operating in the midst of scarcity, will continue to positively inform and impact the next major S-curve in competition and innovation. Modeling success. Today, 2021, the world's most evolved economies in the field of information and communications technology, ICT, is, drumroll please, Taiwan. Not mainland China, not South Korea, not even the US, it's Taiwan. The East Asian juggernaut relies on a combination of tech and digital services to register 16% of GDP. And remember, this is the largest figure of any country on Earth. Think of Ireland, which is another major island tech hub. It only tacks up 10%, according to the UN Digital Economy Report. But these figures are still modest, tiny really. As for the US, just 5% of GDP is generated through the so-called digital economy, which is pretty surprising. Even tech leaders around the world like Finland and Singapore still only score 4.3 and 9% respectively. As for Israel, a highly touted startup nation, it's actually down from just 11% in 2013. And even when you consider ICT sector employment as a share of total employment, the global leader is still Taiwan at just 9%. That's roughly one in 10 jobs are in tech. In the US, by contrast, it's only one in 40. And in Israel, it's still only one in every 20 jobs. Far more people in Israel still work in cut diamonds, which constituted 23% of Israel's total exports in 2016, its largest product sector. By the way, the Hebrew slang for bling is ki'ilu bling bling, or if you really want to be accurate, it's notzetz. Although if you asked Lil Pump, or Lil John, or the recently pardoned Lil Wayne, who we love, they might have a new word for us. I just gotta ask. So, there's a long way to go when it comes to digital. There's nothing wrong with an economy based in, on, or around diverse sectors. But many of those in Israel today are outdated, arthritic, sclerotic, or destined for obsolescence. One of the clear upsides of a technological economy is its growth potential. The digital economy, the one we're suggesting at least, will have the ability to grow rapidly. And we're talking about scale, not stretch. This is economics not yoga. The question is, how do you get there in real time, in the real world? And that is what we'll explore in this episode, treating Israel as a critical test case for developing a technocracy. 
historical necessity. For the first 50 years of Israeli history, 1945 until 1995, the country had no viable, robust, or routine trade relationships with any of its neighbors. To the north, Israel and Lebanon maintain to this day a hostile relationship. Technically, they're still at war, having only reached a ceasefire during their last major military confrontation in 2006. To the northeast, Israel has similarly hostile relations with Syria. Directly to the east, Jordan, well, they were in a state of war until the signing of a peace accord in October 1994. And even 26 years later, cross-border trade remains at a mere trickle. To the southeast, although not officially touching Israel, but certainly visible from the port city of Eilat, Saudi Arabia has observed the Arab League boycott dating back to December 1945. And finally to the south, Egypt, even after signing a peace treaty with Israel in 1979, very little trade exists. Just 1% of Israeli imports today come from Egypt, and less than 0.1% of Israel's total exports go to Egypt. Let's place that in context. If Israel's total exports in 2019 were an estimated 114 billion, only 114 million would go to Egypt. That's the price of a few paintings. In fact, it was the price of four paintings by the abstract expressionist Clifford Still, sold at auction in New York in 2011. Just four paintings, $114 million. It's a lot of tacos. To this day, at least as of March 2021, annual trade between Israel and the Arab world, which we define as the 22 member nations of the Arab League, remains very modest, small really. According to the Israel Central Bureau of Statistics, total direct and indirect imports of goods and services was $2 billion, or 3% of all imports. Total exports from Israel to Arab League countries, just $5.4 billion, or 5.4% of all exports. Israel's economy seems to have hummed along over the last 20 years, even without trading with its neighbors. But imagine how much more stable and how much healthier Israel might be could be, will be, and better able to meet the needs of all of its citizens if the overall size of the pie grows more rapidly. Israel has massive advantages in tech, massive investable resources in terms of talent, IP, training and access to global capital, not to mention momentum. It has the ability to deploy resources speedily and intelligently, as evidenced most recently by the COVID vaccine rollout and they're not going to reach growth goals by reverting back to a socialist model. It'll be impossible to achieve another S-curve of growth or scale by doubling down on diamonds. Current challenges. Nothing in this country is easy, ever. Going to the bank, it's a pain in the ass. Going to the post office, the grocery store, or the market, or God forbid, a government agency, it's a balagan. That means a fiasco. Even getting on the bus. The national bus operator, Eged, is famous for never actually making stops. Drivers just sort of slow down and give commuters a sporting chance to hop on, like that scene in Speed. Well, good luck, everyday people, pensioners, retirees. Get on if you can, even if you don't have the reflexes or abs of Keanu Reeves. But the urgency of the growth program is real and made all the more obvious by Israel's social spending, its budgetary limits, and current poverty indicators. It's also tied to one of the most contentious social issues in the country, 
the role of the ultra-Orthodox, or what's often called the Dati-Chiloni divide. Religious families have what many secular people and parties consider a stranglehold on government subsidies and state coffers. We know this is sensitive, but this is a commonly heard complaint. Here are some figures. In 2018, only 51% of ultra-Orthodox men were part of the Israeli workforce. 52% of Haredim, ultra-religious families, lived under the poverty line. Compare that to just 22% nationally. The net monetary income for a Haredi Jew in 2016 was around 3,500 shekels, or just over $1,000. Compare this to the national average across all of Israel, which was 6,200 shekels, nearly double. They're only making half as much. Keep in mind, things in Israel are not cheap. Take Tel Aviv, for instance. In 2014, it was the 35th most expensive city in the world. Or if we employ the decidedly unglot kosher Big Mac Index, which is calculated by The Economist every year, Israel ranks slightly cheaper than the U.S., but remains the seventh most expensive country worldwide. Now, not all of the ultra-Orthodox live in Tel Aviv, we know, but prices aren't that different elsewhere across the country. Israel is pricey. Now, in other major Jewish communities around the globe, London, Antwerp, New York, Los Angeles, ultra-Orthodox families earn an income. They work. This is often not the case in Israel. And in many cases, they do not serve in the army, which is compulsory for all other Jewish citizens and a responsibility shared by many members of the Druze community. But what really upsets non-Haredi Israelis is that the ultra-Orthodox don't pay taxes, but they continue to reap government benefits. Since Israel's founding, a cornerstone of the country has been national service, which for most people has meant military service. But in reality, fewer than one in five Israeli soldiers are in combat roles. The majority serve in support roles. National service can also be spent or serve in a variety of other ways, including options outside of the army itself. It may not be practical or even wise to forcibly negotiate new roles littered with caveats, conditions, and exceptions to encourage Haredi participation. But what is important and achievable, and in our view critical, is greater participation, greater accountability as citizens and as recipients of social services, and significant support from the state. The idea that a greater number of ultra-Orthodox men in particular give something measurable and material back to the country, not just religious or spiritual service in the abstract, and participate more fully as engaged and responsible citizens is key. They can no longer be a protected or separate class. Another major challenge is the complete asymmetry of available resources, educational outcomes, and employment prospects for members of the Arab-Israeli community, which constitutes 20% of the country. That's one in every five citizens. This cannot and should not be ignored. Of course, these are just a few of what any pessimist would quickly tack up to 300 major problems in modern-day Israel. But at least some of the issues we've highlighted, or are about to highlight, lend themselves to digital intervention, which leads us to opportunity areas. What might this look like in reality? Played out in real time and at scale? Well, let's start with future verticals based on existing industries that can replace the sectors of yesteryear? How can we move Israel more permanently away from its reliance on cut gems, cement, and citrus into the realm of value-added exports shipped by a satellite 
or via fiber optic cable. Cement and citrus simply will not employ a 21st century workforce, not at scale, and they won't add significant value, although we admit they both smell nice as notes and bottled fragrances. Let's start with education. Israel produces a truly prodigious number of academics, and it exports many of them to leading universities around the world. In fact, Israel might be the most disproportionately well-represented nation of origin in the entire professoriate. This is in part because of the tiny, hyper-competitive academic market in Israel. There are only nine major universities in the country. Not a lot of tenure-track positions available. We admit there are more than 40 colleges and religious training centers aplenty. But the state of Pennsylvania alone has more than 164 colleges and universities. The U.S. is a far bigger market. Back to the point. The Israel university system does not need to contribute to a larger percentage of GDP in the next decade. They don't need to produce more professors or generate more patents or secure larger philanthropic donations to expand services. If they wish to, separate matter. What they do need is a surrounding network of new vocational training schools. Israel needs to prepare and equip the next generation and the rising or expanding labor force to compete in emerging verticals. Israel will still continue to produce highly skilled and highly competitive engineers, people specializing in fluid mechanics and artificial intelligence, data science, and a bevy of other hyper-specialized fields that are crucial to innovation. But the reason that we're going to spend at least the next 10 minutes detailing new job fields and new areas of innovation, not just suitable for the Israeli workforce or the future workforce, is to paint a more complete picture of how and why Israel is positioned to win and what it needs to do so. There are several factors to consider. One, culture. The entire ethos of this country predated Nike's haloed brand motto, just do it. Israel's innovative by instinct, frankly, by necessity. They've had to figure out a way to just get things done, like COVID vaccinations, which outpaced the rest of the world by far. Their war footing, or familiarity with urgency, speed, and executional zeal, makes them uniquely equipped to act fast. That is not to ignore the controversy over the unwillingness or apparent inability to vaccinate millions of Palestinians, which you can critique, and you should. We're just commenting on the speed of the program as it was designed, but you can critique the design. Number two, VC funding and available capital. According to the Times of Israel, $39 billion was raised in just the past 10 years, with Israeli firms raising a record $8.3 billion in 2019 alone. That was a 30% rise from the previous year in more than 500 separate deals. And as we've said previously, Israel is now the leading recipient per capita of venture capital in the world. Factor three, military training. The army is not just an assimilation tool, melting pot, or a proving ground. It's also a prolific oven producing the next generation of talent. From programming to intelligence, operations to public service, intermodal mobility to aeronautics, it's shaping and readying the country for the challenges of tomorrow, today. And the maturity it requires, or teaches and imparts, outpaces just about anything you could expect to get from an 18 to 22 year old in the American, English, French, or even German university system. Factor four, 
ethnic, and linguistic diversity. This is not just a Hebrew-speaking country at all. Arabic is an official language. English is part of the required curriculum, which helps. There are also many French speakers, and at least 20% of the population speaks Russian. This kind of mix with language capability or language retention and a working cultural knowledge of other countries is rarely found outside of much larger metropolitan areas like New York, London, Paris, or Lagos. And factor five, global orientation by hours kept. That might sound like a mouthful. What we mean is, unlike some of the other aforementioned capital cities, Tel Aviv broadly maintains European and American working hours. They're also positioned geographically to easily maintain hours or access to markets in the Far East. These are major advantages. But maybe the most important factor and the least considered or emphasized in recent conversations with Lenore Barel and Dan Revive, authors of To the Moon on a Plastic Bottle. What they emphasize was access. Remember, even an 18-year-old kid in Israel getting ready to enter the army is only ever one or at most two steps removed from the CEO or chairman of a company, which means they can bring new, crazy, or never-before-considered ideas to the attention of top decision-makers. And that kind of access hardly exists anywhere outside of the global jet set. And these kids aren't even part of the scooter set. The second factor that they emphasize, and this is major, remember that term, the balagan, the Hebrew word for chaos, bedlam, problems, madness, or a mess? Well, yeah, that's the circus of daily life in Israel. The bus station, the bank, you name it. Everything is a mess through which you have to navigate. And that sort of perfect preparation, not just for the unknowns and imponderables in the army or on the battlefield, but for the challenges of leading a startup. Founding a company is not a genteel game of sport. It's a war, fought tooth and claw to win, or in Israel's case, to never lose. So how will this technocratic program impact the country, the labor force, and the families looking to get ahead? Well, we did some basic modeling plotted out projections, and roped in economists to help kick the tires. That's why we spoke to UC Berkeley economics professor Steve Tadellis. You also said that the magnitude of inequality came to you as a surprise in the Bay Area. In our research, we found that, you know, the OECD conducted a study, um, and in it, they said that GDP growth accelerated, you know, in the 90s, that is, GDP growth accelerated in countries around the world, so did income inequality. But... That wasn't always true. So between the late, the mid-90s and the late 2000s, as income inequality did increase in places like Sweden, Denmark, and Finland, it actually decreased in places like Mexico, Turkey, and Chile. Is it possible that as we pursue a much more vigorous tech-centered economy in Israel, that all of the boats would rise with the rising tide? I think it takes a very rare set of events to make sure that all boats rise on their own. Uh, so let's take uh, one scenario that uh, people speak about. Again, this is speculative on behalf of people, but uh, I, I think uh, you, you see it coming around the corner, and I'll use the example of self-driving vehicles. From the little I know about that topic, one of the most promising first 
stages of rolling out self-driving vehicles would be large uh, trucks, uh, basically uh, semi-trailers and, and stuff like that, where for the most part, we're talking about a lot of long distance hauling on straight highways, which is a lot easier than maneuvering uh, within cities. And um, I'm trying to remember the numbers. I saw these numbers a couple of years ago that there may be about 1.2 million uh, full-time truck drivers in the United States. Uh, I don't know numbers outside and I'm not sure those numbers are accurate. And many of these people would lose their jobs. Obviously, um, given that their training seems to be rather limited, the likelihood of them being able to pick up jobs that earn a commensurate income is probably pretty low. So those would be some boats that would not rise at all. In fact, they would somewhat sink without some kind of support, retraining, etc. I think that it's not easy to make that leap that folks who are less educated and who are in a variety of jobs and industries that are somewhat you know, narrow and not easy to transform from. I'll give you another example. I don't know where this is going to go, but I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, Amazon uh, uh, Go store where people walk in, take stuff off the shelf and walk out. Uh, it's rolled out uh, across several cities in the United States starting about four years ago. And uh, obviously you see how cashiers and possibly some other roles uh, in these kind of stores would uh, go away, uh, would these people find alternate uh, sources of income? I think it's somewhat difficult to say, again, especially if they don't have some kind of training. So I'm, I'm not a big believer that there are events that cause all boats to rise, but I could see how with uh, some form of smart policy, uh, that could indeed happen, but again, that's a bit outside of my wheelhouse. Well, let's build on that for a second. So in the classic neoliberal model, it was assumed that you trade to and for your advantage. So if you're France and you can effectively or successfully and produce an enviable quality of product like wine, but it's not so easy for you to produce or to extract energy, then you trade. The challenge as America vigorously pursued these policies is that they, they never compensated or properly accommodated and accounted for the losers in the scenario. So if America was going to ramp up trade in, in this case, energy manufacturing, but they were going to wind down consumer product goods that were largely exported to China, a lot of those people were left permanently behind. And that creates real political, I mean, the, the dimensions of that kind of crisis are chiefly political, not just economic. Are there policy instruments that you think could reasonably be put in place to soften that blow. And so one final example, you know, during Germany reunification, when the Troy hand was tasked with selling off or eliminating underperforming industries in the East, there was massive social dislocation and massive unemployment, but they were miraculously able to turn it around in relative haste. You might even argue that even though some of those issues remain raw for many, even today, overwhelmingly Germany was able to grow its way through that bottleneck or crisis. Given the relatively modest size of the Israeli economy, its resilience even through decades of hardship and lack, almost complete lack of trade until this year with most of its Arab neighbors, do you have reason to believe that maybe it could either 
be an anomaly in this case, or that there's a crude instrument that could be implemented to ensure that more people benefit from what might otherwise be a painful transition to pure tech? Israel is an interesting potential country that could be an anomaly along the lines that you suggest. As you know, I lived there for a little over 20 years. And one thing I believe that is true about Israel, definitely compared to the United States, and probably more so than many other countries, is a sense of we're in this together. Now, of course, I'm speaking primarily about the Jewish population. There are serious and significant uh, issues uh, of inequality towards the uh, Arab population in Israel, but I'll leave that aside because those are the kind of issues for which I have no solution and not too much optimism at this stage, but we'll see how things unfold there. But at least for the Jewish population, there is a strong sense of we're in this together, which I think goes back to the fundamentals of the uh, foundation of the country that was a country that rose out of the uh, ashes of genocide and uh, basically millennia of persecution. And as such, uh, I think it is a society that is more open to redistribution and to government intervention, at least uh, more than the United States for sure, and, and again, more than many other countries, probably with the exception of Scandinavia, where I think there's a strong sense of cohesion and, and trust in government. So I could see how leveraging that sense of togetherness together with smart programs. So you mentioned Germany. One of the things that uh, is, is really fascinating about Germany, and again, I'm no expert on this, but I'm, I'm aware of it, is their system of apprenticeships where folks in their teens that um, don't show the kind of interest or aptitude for more rigorous university studies are put into tracks uh, where they learn trades that are useful, you know, think car mechanics uh, that uh, we're still going to need for many, many decades to come, I think. And these are folks who uh, work in in uh, kind of work-study environments, and, and they learn a trade, and, and then they're able to work in that trade. Now, the types of trades that are going to be needed would obviously change uh, as technology changes and as the economy evolves, and having a good finger on the pulse of that change and maybe even being able to direct some of that change could be a very useful direction in order to train people that otherwise would be left behind. Now, one aspect of these kind of models that people have some hesitation about is whether government is the right body to be able to do that. Well, government is the only body that kind of has that kind of scale and, and jurisdiction, so to speak. But at the same time, uh, forms of public-private partnerships, I think, would be very useful for these kind of activities in order to leverage the kind of talent that is often not found in government. So we attempted to lay out, industry by industry, vertical by vertical, what these new frontiers of opportunity might look like. We based this model on several considerations. One, with educational deepening going on in America and elsewhere, the value relative to the cost of a college degree is beginning to scarcely resemble the equation 20 years ago. And it might actually make a great deal more sense, mindful of what you were saying about apprenticeships in Germany, 
to train these people in a vocational program that are a lot less expensive and more likely to earn income in the shorter term. Is there anything that you, after hearing this, find uh, exciting, suspect, or warranting additional critique or criticism? Well, as a general idea, I do find it exciting. I think um, there definitely is a bit too much emphasis on doing the whole college route. Um, at the same time, I, I do want to acknowledge that, at least in the United States, college plays an important role in growing up and maturing and becoming an adult. And in a country like Israel, that uh, task has, again, primarily for the Jewish population, been outsourced to the military. So um, people in Israel will often start their you know, educational life uh, at the age of 20 or 21 or sometimes a bit later if you take the mandatory 8 to 12-month uh, backpacking trip in South America or Southeast Asia. And I think at that point, you know, people being more mature, uh, socially more mature and uh, responsible then that aspect of university as social club loses its its strength and I could see the great benefits of having these very focused vocational programs that uh, get people to work quite quickly. I do believe that there is an important aspect of uh, four-year colleges and possibly community colleges to a certain degree, to give people some, you know, critical thinking tools, uh, other tools that could help them live a more successful life that, again, many are not getting even in this expensive educational environment we're in, such as uh, taking care of finances, some uh, minimal understanding of planning and, and uh, retirement and savings and and even things like, you know, how to uh, economically fill your fridge uh, using some reasonable aspect of uh, cost-benefit analysis. So I, I would expect these programs you're mentioning to be a lot more valuable if aside from just offering a set of narrow skills that could get butts in work seats, so to speak, would add some training that is a little more holistic about living a successful uh, life and an engaged life. Another thing that, that comes to mind as a possible concern is the ability to uh, predict where these uh, resources uh, should best go. So do you wait a little longer for signs of emerging industries and then step in to create programs that help fill those uh, industry jobs? Or do you try to, you know, look around the corners to predict what industries might be valuable in the uh, near future in order to create that supply of the workforce a little before the demand starts emerging? I, I think that could be a bit risky. Um, but might be interesting to think about. And that, again, is going to be related to the length of the program. We're talking about four to six to eight-week programs that are very, very focused, and this is obviously something that should respond to existing needs. If the vocational training is a little longer, maybe, you know, six to ten months or a year, which, again, is nothing compared to a four-year degree, uh, then maybe some, you know, future planning 
and uh, foresight might be a little useful. Pivoting is not an unsurmountable challenge. So I think one of the biggest benefits I see here, aside from, again, the numbers seeming sensible, given the speculations put in, is that this is the kind of program where we're, at least I believe, we're not talking about you know, years of investment in creating an infrastructure that would basically be like a huge uh, oil carrier that is very, very hard to turn once you've set its direction. I think these are the kind of programs that could respond rather quickly to information that gets measured on the back end of these people exiting the programs. So one other related question, I mean, I know that somebody could probably devote an entire PhD to figuring out or optimizing tax policy in the United States, particularly for the hereditarily wealthy or for people that have, you know, windfall gains related to a tech innovation. But there is a history, at least in, in America, of profoundly, you could even say preposterously wealthy people, either cleansing their name or their reputation or building a legacy based on philanthropy. And it wasn't just true of the Mellons or the Rockefellers. It's certainly been true of late by people like Bill Gates. If we wanted to finance this new program and we put a, you know, a dollar bill on it or a price tag, have you seen, are you aware of, have you read about a program or protocol or tax instrument that could or would specifically incentivize multi-billionaires to help foot this bill other than for reasons of vanity? Unlike the United States, where donations to any non-for-profits are, uh, fall under the category of tax deductions, then maybe here the government of Israel could say, well, if you donate uh, to these activities, and you are Israeli and, and hence liable for taxes in Israel, then you get an even sweeter tax deduction than other types of philanthropy, precisely because this generates jobs that then generates income, that then generates less reliance on social welfare and more income that gets taxed and goes to the coffers of the government. It might actually, through this virtuous circle, be an extremely uh, important and beneficial policy arm that the government can use. Okay, well, what about health? That's another major sector. Rather famously, the Philippines actively exports nurses and nannies around the planet. That appears to be a material advantage for them, and a cultural one to some extent. But where Israel is uniquely qualified to compete, at least in health, in a manner accretive to a technocratic goal, is through digital support and services like private athletic training. Ex-Special Forces personnel could and should be trainers on Peloton, Mirror, SoulCycle. They could even lead digital Krav Maga courses. They could be online yoga coaches, HIT instructors, you name it. And they can compete at a fraction of the cost typically commanded by trainers in LA or New York. This is already happening in the US, where a company called FitOps helps American veterans become personal athletic trainers. FitOps has partnered with fitness apps and platforms to give its members virtual platforms to train clients. And Israel obviously has the talent for this. Can you imagine a fitness lesson with a Zohan? Count me in. You can imagine similar approaches with psychotherapy and social work. Accredited psychologists and social workers could easily address patient needs remotely via apps and even newer specialized platforms like Talkspace or Ginger and Omada. EU and US-based businesses already do, 
and could increasingly draw talent from qualified professionals in Israel. Sure, there might be qualified professionals everywhere, but Israel's culture of therapy, English language capabilities, and cost advantages vis-a-vis -vis England, France, and Germany, or the US and Canada, certainly work in its favor. The same can be said for digital nursing, some types of remote digital nursing, for telemedicine, for prescription writing and prescription monitoring, particularly for behavioral health and type 2 diabetes. It's worth remembering that technology is not just TikTok or Tinder. It's teleradiology. It's wearable heart monitors, like the Apple Watch, that can detect arrhythmia. It's the development of vaccines at near hyperspeed, relative to measles or polio, and what technology can do and deliver in the next five years to reduce pain, meet behavioral health needs, provide greater care or comfort to the elderly, educate the young, or even lift people out of poverty will be far greater than anything we've witnessed or measured to date in analog industries. Tech tends to breed tech, and Israel already has a combination of expertise, a tech ecosystem, and a unique set of cultural and even behavioral advantages which we've started to describe, not to mention demand. Legal is another opportunity area. Israel does not need more lawyers, bless them, but there is demand for increasingly nimble legal services. You can do patent design generation, drafting illustrations, patent filings and petitions, patent protection and approvals done remote. You can do the same with tax prep, assuming that your needs are slightly more sophisticated than what TurboTax can ever deliver or H&R Block. Legal research is another applicable category. The reason we mention it is that it's uniquely, if not perfectly suited, for the religiously well-read and steeped in the art of hermeneutical or Talmudic study and scrutiny. Now, why does this even matter? Well, we're looking for new opportunities to put Haredim meaningfully to work in the labor force. And there's a related idea here, which we sort of just had to share. Jews believe that the very existence of the world depends on three pillars, Torah, kindness, and services of the heart. So what if there were a new expression or interpretation of that trinity? What if there was a legitimate digital equivalent, like love farms, teams of human beings modeled loosely after the Russian troll farms, but inspired instead by Theodore, he was the writer of professional love letters played to perfection by Joaquin Phoenix in the movie Her. Remember that? Yeah. So these would be like love squads. Israel could deploy English and French speakers or cunning linguists with the command of Spanish, German, and Arabic, all of which, remember, are read or spoken in Israel, and task them with slipping into people's DMs on Instagram or tasking them with lovingly trolling other people on Facebook and Twitter, even get them to comment affectionately on LinkedIn profiles. Nobody wants to hear another automated congrats on the new position well-deserved. You could do this with TikTok, even on Medium articles. Leverage the chemical power of a compliment to improve people's lives just a tiny bit every day. You could incrementally bring more meets vote, more light, more love into the world. Bhutan already measures gross national happiness, and even McKinsey is starting to measure GDP plus. So why shouldn't Israel? It could start moving the needle on global well-being. Think about it. Good digital citizenship as a complement or natural pair to private prayer? It could work. I mean, 
Look at how much of an impact Reddit had on GameStop. Anything's possible. So we've covered finance, we've covered health. And again, that doesn't mean we've solved it. We've simply teased these sectors. But I think entertainment is another important one to consider because it's increasingly a prominent piece of Israel's overseas profile. You've probably heard enough stats. It's fine. Just one more. The entertainment sector in Israel accounted for $5.2 billion in 2017, just over 3% of GDP. And for a rising generation, there will be emerging roles and opportunities in film editing, content production for the global market, writing and direction for the local market, not to mention global marketing and distribution. Israel, you know, it's not just shows like Fauda or Homeland. There are a lot of opportunities for this sector to prove an important piece of the puzzle. So why do we believe this whole vision or idea is achievable across the entire labor force? Well, in Israel, the total labor force is fewer than 5 million people. Precisely, 4.02, according to the CIA's estimate. The entire country only has a population of 9.1 million people, which is roughly the size of New York City. Now, you can dismiss the complexity of running New York as a matter of sheer impossibility, and the prospect of transforming New York as remote or distant. It's not easy. But if you tried to imagine a master plan like this to transform the Bay Area with a singular uniting purpose and plenty of built-in advantages when it comes to tech, suddenly that's more plausible, especially if we're taking a tech-based approach. We believe that Israel, like every other country, has levers to pull, rudders to adjust, or wheels to turn, but no buttons that can automatically be pressed. And some aspects of Israeli culture are sort of immutable, like toughness or forbearance and determination. We get it. What we're doing here is detailing a plan to better treat and better meet the needs of all of its citizens more equitably and more comprehensively, not to mention more quickly. Okay, so the question of the hour, how much will all of this cost? According to our calculations, and you can check the model, just over $8 billion. And we made very conservative assumptions and placed the cost of these new training programs that we've mentioned, vocational training schools, at about $10,000 per graduate with a year of study. Obviously, many required courses will be shorter, many will be less expensive. And we're assuming that only 20 jobs are created for every high-value engineering hire. Evidence from the academic literature suggests that the numbers in other markets are actually higher, that for each major engineering hire, it produces more jobs. But we can achieve the same results with less money in only eight years with this plan based on, as I said, very conservative assumptions. Okay, so who's going to foot the bill? Who's going to pay for it? And how? More importantly, how are you going to politic this idea or put it into play? Well, we can start by modeling initial efforts, just initial efforts, after the major American industrialists like Mellon, Carnegie, and Rockefeller. Forgive me, Carnegie. The captains of industry. Their fortunes were accumulated in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, but they didn't just create multi-generational wealth for each family. They produced capital that was channeled into major and lasting impact. Among Rockefeller's many areas of activity, he directed resources to the establishment of the University of Chicago, and the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research, now Rockefeller University. The Mellons, in addition to funding and co-creating 
the major university known today as Carnegie Mellon, also founded the National Gallery of Art in DC, patronized the University of Pittsburgh, Yale, and the University of Virginia. And the foundation remains one of, if not the largest supporter of arts and humanities in the US. Just imagine what Larry Ellison could achieve with just 1% of his estimated $78 billion fortune. There's the Kushner argument. He's been called many things, sure. Bratman, Putin's protege, frat Sputin, the prince of everything, vanilla ISIS. I mean, come on. One of the late night hosts called him Harvard's shiniest mistake, a mannequin or a Manichaean. But that guy, say or think what you will of him, orchestrated a diplomatic triumph unmatched by George Mitchell, Barack Obama, and a phalanx of other talented career politicians and diplomats. He did. Jared, Ralph Lauren of Arabia, the secretary of everything. Washington insiders found it and continue to find it infuriating. They're apoplectic. It defied all conventional thinking, logic, and wisdom in Foggy Bottom, the home of the State Department. You want an example? Listen to this forceful summary from Secretary of State John Kerry in the waning days of the Obama administration. There will be no separate peace between Israel and the Arab world. I want to make that very clear to all of you. I've heard several prominent politicians in Israel sometimes saying, well, the Arab world's in a different place now. We just have to reach out to them and we can work some things with the Arab world and we'll deal with the Palestinians. No, 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 and no. I can tell you that reaffirmed even in the last week as I have talked to leaders of the Arab community. There will be no advance and separate peace with the Arab world without the Palestinian process and Palestinian peace. Everybody needs to understand that. That is a hard reality. He was dead wrong. Fault, too many years of crippling groupthink. But it does prove that if you get the right outsider with the right insiders, in the right rooms, at the right time, away from the scrutiny of the 24-hour news cycle, there's no telling what you can achieve, and relationships matter. It's not just a matter of what you're proposing or attempting to broker, but who's asking. I still don't buy it. Why Jewish investors? They don't need to be Jewish. They just need to be billionaires. Which brings me to my third point, the Gates argument. These aren't arguments, they're examples. Fine, examples. Just let me finish, Norman. It's Noam. No one gets the joke. The Gates argument is, you can't predict who's going to leverage their largesse and help heal the world, or when. Some of you might recall the WTO protests in Seattle in 1999. Well, Bill Gates back then was a vilified public figure, loathed, hated. He was the Mark Zuckerberg of his time in his youth. But that was before he dedicated his life to philanthropy to global health, and to wearing sweaters. There's no telling when, where, or how some of these aforementioned billionaires will put their treasure to use in a way that positively and unselfishly alters the course of history. And it might just come down to the opportunity at hand, and who's asking. Remember, if they pull just 1.8% of their resources individually, we'd quickly get to that $8.3 billion figure required to foot the bill. How do we arrive at that number? Well, we have a model. We had economists review it, and you're more than welcome to download it and see what you think. Now we admit, philanthropy was a very different animal 120 years ago. 
and even 50 years ago. And Israel is a political live wire. Philanthropists might generally prove more inclined to fund innovation, health, or water and ecology projects in India or in Central Africa than in a nation many already assume to be rich and believed by many to be morally dubious. But many are shocked to learn that Israel actually has the highest poverty rate of any OECD country. 21% of Israelis live under the poverty line. That's slightly more than one in five. So, strangely, even as a technological heavyweight, Israel continues to attract philanthropy as a country with a significant poverty issue. And for many tech titans, the chance to prove out their commitment to innovation or underscore their belief in the transformative power of tech at scale, or if they just want to launder their reputation, might prove terrifically tempting. They could prove that tech can indeed fix, or at least start to remedy, what none of the major powers or diplomats or statesmen and stateswomen ever could. That's much more fun to brag about, Larry Ellison, than a boat with blades. I'm sorry, an AC-75 with foiling monohulls. This is your host, Michael Phillips Moskowitz, or MPM, signing off from Berlin. We'd like to thank Mainland Media, the New Institute, our researchers, Basia Rosenblum, Samuel Feldman, and for the sake of posterity, thank you, Ikea, for producing more tears than Visine. And thank you, Corgis, for keeping it close to the ground. Thank you, Peanut Allergies, for keeping us on our toes. We'll see you next time when we talk about the treatment of epigenetic trauma at scale. Aloha and shalom. <laughs>